Daniela. Welcome to my podcast, because everyone has a story. The place to give ordinary people's stories the chance to be shared and preserved. Our stories become the language of connections. Let's enjoy it, connect and relate, because everyone has a story. Welcome, my guest, Tim Haley. Tim is a fellow podcaster and a former British Army officer. Tim has many stories to share, but today he's focusing on his last eight years in the Army as a unit welfare officer for London Central Garrison, how his role functioned and who he was helping. I had a lot of fun with Tim. He is comical and very clever. He invited me to be a guest on his show as well. And you can see that episode in my show notes. The funny thing is that he recorded that episode with the background of his favorite pop. It looks surreal. I actually thought that he was in the pop, but that was not true. It's just a really good picture that he took. There was missing people around him. You have to catch that episode. Tim got his idea for his podcast after recording 12 hours of his own stories. Imagine that. Many generations are going to be listening to Tim's stories. He wanted to have this, to preserve stories, to never lose one story of ordinary people. And that's exactly what my plan is. So that's why we have so many things in common, and I truly enjoyed meeting him. Tim is quite a character, and I am so grateful to have met him. Let's enjoy his story. Welcome, Tim, to the show. Yeah, I am happy that you're here to tell us a story because you are full of stories. I am. Thanks for having me. Yes, thank you. Tim, why do you want to share a story? Because if I don't, then it'll be lost forever. This is exactly my point of the podcast. I wanted to preserve people's stories because I think we forget about that and it is so important. So thank you for reaching out. No, it's my pleasure. Tim, when does your story start? This particular story will start in about 2009. Okay. In 2009. And tell us a little bit about you. Well, apart from being absolutely gorgeous, <laughs> un underneath this gorgeous exterior, there's an absolute train wreck going on. <laughs> <laughs> I spent the best part of 44 years in the British Army. So I was an infantry soldier for all of my career. I did come out of the army for a short time as a, a regular reserve, but I ended up going back in and I spent my last 20 years in the army as a full-time reserve. When I was in Afghanistan in 2009, the unit that I was with couldn't give me another contract when I came back. So I had to look for another job. Got offered a couple of jobs. One was to go up to what they called I-Branch, which was the interrogators branch. And that just involves teaching people to ask the right sort of questions at the right sort of time to get the information that you're looking for. It's not putting people on the waterboard and beating the crap out of them. It's just talking to people. So I was offered that job and I didn't really fancy that. I was offered another job to go around the country briefing up different military units on counter-terrorism and the measures that they could take. And I thought, I'm never ever going to be in one place for long enough to do anything so I mugged that one off but I saw an ad for this particular role which was a unit welfare officer for the guards in London I thought that sounds a bit 
like fun. So I applied for the job. I came back in the, the end of January or early February from Afghanistan to, to London, put a suit and tie on and met some officers in the guards at Wellington Barracks, had a pretty intense interview and they offered me the job there and then. And then I started on the 1st of September 2009 down in Woolwich, which is just to the west of London. It's famous for the Royal Artillery. I started there with Nyman Company was the second battalion before it was disbanded in um, 1994 under options for change. But they kept on a company to do incremental duties in London. And that involved mounting guards on Buckingham Palace, St. James's Palace, the Tower of London and Windsor Castle. So that's what the guys did. Joined the army. They'd gone through their training as guardsmen. And the training for the guardsmen is slightly different because they're still infantry soldiers, but they get an extra couple of weeks to do drill. And their drill has to be better than anybody else's because uh, mount guard and go on to on the royal palaces. This particular role was a new role that had been formed up to look after the welfare of these young, young lads that are coming straight out of training. So they didn't have this role before? No, they didn't. They, it used to be done by the company sergeant major, but they felt that wasn't best place to be able to look after the guy's welfare when he's instilling discipline into them. So this new role as a, as a welfare officer, positioned as a, as a colour sergeant, it was a blank piece of paper, basically. I, I, I met the company commander, I met the company sergeant major. They told me some of the issues that they were having with some of the the young lads coming out of training. And young lads nowadays have a unique set of problems. It's either money trouble, girlfriend trouble, or trying to fit in trouble. They're still young lads are sort of 18, 17, 18, 19. They're still learning where they, their position is in life. And on top of that, then they're learning to be soldiers and guardsmen. They pick this role specifically or they are being picked by being the best? Well, when you sign up to join the army, you do some tests to see what level that you can go into or what jobs that you can go into. And then depending on how you score these tests, depends on what role you can do. As an infantry soldier nowadays, it's quite a technical type job. So you have to score fairly high to be able to become an infantry soldier because of all the, the new type of equipment and stuff that infantry soldiers are expected to be able to cope with and use. But these soldiers there in Buckingham Palace, they have to have another training too to be able to stay still yeah i mean that's that's what the training is that's why they get the extra drill from a normal infantry soldier all soldiers doesn't matter what regiment or corps they belong to they all go through basic training and the basic training there's a large part of it that is drill but the guards do extra drill they learn to stand still to be able to go and stand outside the palaces and they are allowed to move but they have to move in such a way that it's in a guardsman like military manner <laughs> Oh, I see, I see. Wow. But then the people aspire to be on that role? Yeah, I mean, it's, it is a privilege to be guarding the royal palaces and the Queen. For the foot guards regiments, and there, there are five, the Grenadier guards, which say they're the first, um, then you've got the Coldstream guards, which say that they're second to none, and then you've got the, the Scots guards, and then you've got the Irish guards and the Welsh guards. Each region of the UK has their own foot guards. You started this role, you said in a blank paper, and then you had no idea what the challenges the people had, and you had to learn all this. 
I went in kind of blind. But what kind of training did they have to give you? Coaching, counselor, psychology, all that? No, there's, there's a four-week course that they send you away on. You go away for two weeks, uh, and at that time, it was two weeks at Bristol University. It's a lovely, lovely university, and they give you the, the foundations of being a welfare officer. That's two weeks of a part two of the course. And then you go away and you, you do the job for about six months and then you'll come back and do a further two weeks on part two. Once you've had some experience in the job, it gives you some more tools in the box to be able to do the job. One of the main parts of the job is identifying guys that have got issues, whether you can do anything to help those issues or whether you need to signpost them on to a specialist to be able to do it. The next level up is that the Army Welfare Services, who have slightly more specialised officers that can come in and take over that kind of case. That was one aspect of the job. I've, I've done the course. I've got in there. I started doing the job when I was 53. So I came back from Afghanistan. I was 53 years old. I was pretty fit for my age. So I've, I've come back and I was a little bit worried because sort of the second day in the job, the sergeant major says, well, you need to get to know the lads. Why don't you go out on a run with them? I'm thinking to myself, hang on, these are fit, young, 17, 18, 19-year-olds. I'm 53 and we've got to run up Woolwich uh, Shooters Hill. And it's a big, steep hill. So I run across Woolwich Common, which is a big common, and then you go up what is Shooter's Hill, and it's a big hill. that It's a long sort of hill that runs up to the top. And from the top of this hill, you can sort of look out over sort of South London. So I'm thinking to myself, yeah, all right, no problem. I'm going to struggle at keeping up with these guys. Anyway, we'd only got sort of 15, 20 minutes into the run, and I'm rapidly realising that these young lads aren't as fit as me. <laughs> so I've gone from worrying myself a little bit that, I'm not going to be able to keep up with these guys. And then I'm gobbing off at them to get them to keep up with uh -huh. me. <laughs> That's what I thought you were going to say, actually. <laughs> so I, I kind of set my stall out early in the job. So two days in, I, I'm proving the fact that I'm 53 years old, lads. Come on, you're young soldiers. You should be able to keep up with an old man like me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that was giving them some gentle encouragement. Yes, but I have to mention that 53 is not old. It's a lot older than 18. <laughs> <laughs> nah, yes, nah, but it's not old. <laughs> if 53 is not old anymore. I'm, I'm also suffering from this incurable uh, condition. It's called the Peter Pan syndrome. Oh, I see. I heard of that one. It just means that I'm never, ever going to grow up. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so then what happened? So I was sat on the stall. They now realise that this old geezer that's come in, I mean, because when you're 18, you see somebody 50, you're thinking, oh, he's a right old geezer. I've proved the fact that I'm fitter than these guys. I've, I've gained that bit of respect straight away. Because I sit out of their chain of command, I'm somebody that they can come to if they've got a problem. And that's the whole point of why they form these roles in the first place. So I was the first one into the job. It was about six months in before we got the next guy in. So we ended up with a team of three of us. We we moved them from Woolwich into Wellington Barracks. So we were right in the, the heart of London. And at that time, we also took on the five foot guards bands, also lived in Wellington Barracks. So you got the five bands, which was the, the Grenadier Guards Band, Colstrom Guards, Scots Guards, 
Irish Guards and Welsh Guards bands. Now, the bandsmen, they tend to be generally older soldiers that have been around for quite a long time. They tend to be more arty types, so a little bit more sensitive than than your average guardsman. So they come with their own set of problems. So we had them to deal with as well. We've built up this office of welfare where we've built up trust, certainly within the companies. We stand outside their chain of command. If they've got problems, they come to us. Then we can go to the chain of command and recommend some what they could do. But you, So you were kind of like, like a counsellor, like a priest? Well, well, kind of. We were like first-line support. If a guy's got a problem... A typical problem that, that the guys would have, they would get paid uh, at the beginning of the month. They'd go on Millionaire's Weekend into London. They'd blow all their money, <laughs> all their beer tokens on, on the first weekend. And then they'd spend the rest of the month skint. They didn't have any money to go and buy food. Uh-huh. What we would do, they'd come and say, oh, I've got no money, so um, can I get a hungry soldier chip? So you give them a hungry soldier chip which they could go to the cookhouse and they could get food. And then at the end of the month, when they get paid, they paid that chip back. Okay. So it's like food on account. <laughs> yeah, because in, in England, they get paid once a month. Yeah, they get paid once a month. You chose this job, Tim, because you are somebody who somebody who cares about others or what, what make you choose this job? Um, well, I've always been a personable type of chap. Okay. I love talking to people. I love hearing people's stories. I love that aspect of, of life. So my previous, the, the job I did 10 years prior to starting this welfare job, I was in psychological operations. And that's oh, all about looking at people. It's understanding people. And and for, for, for psychological operations, it was understanding different cultures because That's who our target audience was. That's who the people that we needed to to influence to be able to change an attitude or a behavior. Uh-huh. Interesting. So that's why I spent 10 years doing is looking at, at different cultures, different people to find ways to be able to talk to them, to be able to have an influence on their attitude and their behavior towards us as the the military going into Uh, into war zones, effectively, which is why I did three tours in Afghanistan, a tour of Iraq, two tours of Kosovo, and I did a tour of Macedonia, all in psychological operations. So I've got this knowledge of understanding people. This job came up where I was a welfare officer looking after people. But So he was looking after people, but now it was the same culture, but just younger people, perhaps. What is it that you like the most? Well, the fact that I got this blank piece of paper to write my own job spec, <laughs> effectively. I've, I've done the two courses, so I understand what the job's about. Identifying problems that people have and signposting them on to professionals where they can get professional help. On top of that, we looked after their physical and mental well-being. And to that end, we took part and we kind of run the unit health committee meetings to talk about their soldiers under their command that were having problems or or were on the sick or something like that. And we also run the, the WIS, which was the Wounded Injured Soldiers. So anybody that was wounded or injured that was off work, that couldn't, that couldn't perform their duties, They would come onto our books 
and we would have contact with them at least once a fortnight to make sure that they're getting the treatment that they need, making sure that they don't get left behind or missed in the system. So we spent a lot of time visiting guys that were, were sick at home. I'm curious, but the young guys that just started in the military, the issues that they had were completely different than the ones that when you were in a, in a war zone, obviously. Obviously, we, we had a, a bit of a mix of, of guys. So we, we've got the guys that come straight out of training. We also had guys that would be posted back from the battalions that couldn't deploy out, but that couldn't do a war fighting role. We tended to have a lot of guys that were on the sick or downgraded that we needed to keep an eye on. Do you see that you were making a difference? Oh, yeah, yeah. Every day. We would spend a large part of the day just going around, seeing what the guys were doing. When our particular company was on guard, we would go around to the guard rooms. So I spent quite a bit of time over in Buckingham Palace guard room, St. James's guard room, down to the Tower of London. Or I'd go out to Windsor and occasionally I'd volunteer to do the senior sergeant job on the guard to spend a sort of 24 hours during the summer with the guys on, on guard so I'd get to know them better. And during the winter to months, it was it was a 48-hour guard. So during the summer, there's a guard change every single day. All right. You, you noticed that you were making a difference and you were enjoying the job because it's your personality, helping people, talking to people, getting to know people. And what else happened? It also gave me the opportunity to get guys away to do adventurous training and sport. I was a really keen rugby player and I used to play for my local team, which was the old Caterhamians or the old Cats down in Caterham, and I played scrum half. I managed to convince the, the garrison commander and the, the three company commanders that it would be a great idea if we could form a team from the three companies give the guys opportunity to, to play some rugby. Got a team together and the first team we went to play was my old team, uh, the team that I played for every week. <laughs> so so we made a big, big thing of it because Caterham used to be where the guards depot was up until 1958. They still had guards units in there until 1994 when they this thing, for Changed happened. So they disbanded a lot of a lot of infantry regiments at that time and closed a lot of barracks. And Caterham Barracks was one of the barracks that they closed. But the, the, the town itself still had that strong military link with the guards. Uh, we put a big advertising thing together that was going to have a big day uh, and a rugby game of the guards returning to Caterham. Turned out uh, a fantastic day. We had hundreds of locals turn out to support the game. I played for both teams <laughs> on the day. Who won? Who won? I think he ended up somewhere close to a draw. It was more fun than anything. It was just to get the guys out and just have a really good knockabout for a team that we'd only just sort of put together. So that was really good fun. And we raised a lot of money, local charities and, and the guards' um, charities as well. Tim, does the team, they're still playing rugby? Unfortunately. Not. We lasted two and a half years. Going into the third year, we went up against a major unit team, which was uh, two RRF, who put out Team Fiji. I think we were playing the the national team of Fiji because most of their players were Fijians, and they are built like brick outhouses. 
after this game, uh, the following day, nine guys reported sick. A couple of guys hadn't actually played, but they still weren't sick to see if they could get out of a guard, basically. Um, the next thing I know, I got called into the colonel's office, um, tapping the mat in front of the colonel, and he said, I'm sorry, uh, Callat, we're going to have to pull the pin on the rugby team. We can't afford to have this many guys um, broken that can't do guards. That was the end of the rugby team. Oh, wow. Unfortunately. But do you think they got injured um, during the game or they just were partying too much afterwards? Yeah, a couple of them had a few knocks. I mean, it's nothing major, but I think it was more to do with getting out of a guard. I also took guides skiing. I'm, I'm still a keen telemark skier. I, I put a couple of teams together and I took them to uh, originally into Austria where they had the British Telemark Championships. I'd competed for several years prior to jo joining this job. And then I, I took a load of guys down there because it's a sport, it's paid for by the public purse, etc., etc. So I took a couple of teams down there to take part in the Telemark Championships. And we had, we had some success and we had some good fun. I also managed to, where I lived in Caterham, used to be Kenley Airfield, which was a wartime airfield uh, that was still being used by what they called the Volunteer Glider Squadron, which was the Air Cadets. Been along to these guys and built up a bit of a rapport with them and managed to get, uh, I, I think I took about 15 guys down to go flying for the day in gliders. We had a really fun day at that. Tim, how long did you do this job for? Eight years. Eight years, uh-huh. Eight years I lasted at that, from 2009 until 2018. Uh-huh. And then what happened after 2018? So eight years, making a difference and leaving sport memories and some injuries to some of the guards. What else? I used to take an awful lot of liberties. People say that I'm a bit of a liberty taker, but I managed to bag some numbers So for the Queen's birthday parade, I had a chat with the garrison sergeant major uh, and I said, we'd like to help out on the Queen's birthday parade. I mean, obviously, I'm not a guardsman. I'm a Royal Anglian. I, I wear a slightly different uniform. They wear their, their red tunics. I wear blues and I don't wear a bearskin. I, I wear a, a peak cap. So he said, well, we've got a few jobs. One of them is on the north door in horse guards. You can control that, access to that, because the, the royal family on the minor royals, so you've got the Queen, Prince Philip and Charlie and Princess Anne were all out the front on their horses and stuff like that for the Queen's birthday parade. And then all the other minor royals would go in, into horse guards and they'd go into the, the general's office that looked out over horse guards parade. I bagged that job, so I was looking after the minor royals on the Queen's birthday parade, which was a great honour. Uh -huh. So I got to meet all all the minor royals. So, and the guys who run the, the officers' mess over St. James's Park, they would lay on all the refreshments and everything. And they were buggers, because you know what they did? All the, all the young kids, the minor royal children, they would feed them blue smarties. And you know what blue smarties do to kids? Sends them hyper. <laughs> so, oh. so they'd be feeding all these kids. <laughs> <laughs> smart yeah. and then when they all went back to to Buckingham Palace for for their dinner <laughs> after <laughs> kids would be running around <laughs> like lunatics <laughs> <laughs> so you had that opportunity what other liberties did you take oh so many other liberties well two two of my favorite duties that we managed to bag was the festival of remembrance at the Albert Hall on on the Saturday evening there's a Uh, it's always on the television. You've got a Festival of Remembrance 
um, before the, the Cenotaph Parade on the Sunday. And I managed to do get in there and do some behind-the-scenes stuff. So when when you see the, the Chelsea pensioners come down the stairs, they open the curtains and the garrison sergeant major announces the, the Chelsea pensioners and they're marching down the stairs onto the what's name. Um, I'd be operating the curtains with a colleague. <laughs> <laughs> so I was a curtain oh, wow. operator. <laughs> I've got some I've got some great oh. pictures of me doing some silly silly things <laughs> behind the curtains. <laughs> and and the other favourite job I had was on um the day of the remembrance. I used to um my first role was I'm I've done up in my great coat and I've got my pay stick and I go down to Queen Anne Gate where the London Transport contingent march out up to um, Whitehall, but they have to go out behind the third band. So I I made sure that they went out at the right time to be able to get up to Whitehall at the right time behind the right band. When the uh, the march march pass was after they'd come. They'd march all march past the cenotaph. They'd come back round, back down onto horse cars approach, and I would be on the corner of horse cars approach, trying to keep some semblance of order of all these veterans all marching round, uh, and it concertinas. But it's trying to keep the the set distance for when they got down to the saluting dais, where one of the the, the royals would take the salute onto when they come back round onto Horse Cars Parade. And that was a really fun job because I could interact with the crowd. I'd have a really good laugh. There was me and one of the RQs, uh, the RQMS's Regimental Quartermaster Sergeants did this role. And we had a, we just had a, a, a really good day out. And it was always, I can't remember that we, we ever had rain. We always had November, cold, sunny day for all the ones that I did. And, and that's, that's one of my favorite memories is doing that job. Wonderful. Wonderful. That sounds great. And I'm curious. So you have a family? Yes. So you were doing all these jobs while raising kids. Did they, did they get to see you a lot or, or not as much? We had kids fairly early on. And, and when I used to go away, when I came home, I'd walk through the door. And within five minutes of being home, it was like I'd never been away. And on, on the later operations, it was easier to be able to keep in contact because we had better communication. I was able to ring up once or twice a week and we didn't need to send letters like we did back in the old days. Oh, I see, I see. <laughs> okay. And now you have grandchildren as well? Yeah, got grandkids. Keep them at arm's length. If they do come round, spoil them rotten and then send them back. And do you tell them a lot of stories? I'm sure. <laughs> Go on, Granddad, guess another story. Oh, we've heard that one before. Guess a new one. <laughs> so. Oh. <laughs> well, you have enough stories that uh, they will never get bored. I do have one or two, yes. Yes, you do. You do. And so you loved the job. You did make a difference. And so when you left, somebody else took over. Yeah, the, the role continues to this day. And there's still three Colour sergeants doing the, the welfare job for the garrison. And what happened when you left? Did people were upset, sad? So it was a retirement party. Then I had a big, big retirement party down here where I live now uh, in the Yacht Club. 80 people come to my 60th birthday retirement party. Were you ready for retirement? 
Yeah, I was I was getting close to being burnt out. Ah. Unfortunately, it was around about middle of September of 2017. I put my back out. I spent six weeks in hospital. And on the, the 30th of November, we actually moved from Caterham down to, to where we are now in Gosport. Oh. And I couldn't do a thing. <laughs> but I, when I came out of hospital, um, I was put on the, the sick and I never went back to work. I, I was on the sick up until Christmas. Oh, I see. Mm. And how did that feel? It was difficult at the time. I was ready to leave the job that I was doing. I'd got to the stage where I was. I'd, I'd had enough. It's difficult to listen to people's problems day in, day out without having it some sort of taking a toll on yourself. Although I loved the job, I don't think I could have carried on uh, for much longer. When I went for my um, pre-release medical, um, because I knew I'd, I'd been working with a doctor for the last eight years, we knew each other really well. She did my release medical, and we went through the what you have to checklist and everything, and she says, well, if you wasn't leaving, you would be. <laughs> I said, why? She says, you're not fit enough to stay in the army. And and that time I wasn't. So I've got a condition that, that uh, that's slowly deteriorating, unfortunately. I've got rheumatoid and osteoarthritis that's uh, starting to make some inroads into me daily. You were listening to old people's stories. There was not a way for you to learn how to help yourself as well? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a couple of courses. In fact, there's there's the what they call the Mental Health First Aid course, which is all about looking after your own mental health. And then there's a, a Care for the Carers course, which is also looking after your own personal well-being. Okay, so those ones helped. However, it was too much anyway. Yeah, it's, uh, you, can, you can have too much of a good thing. <laughs> mm, that's true. Okay, and so now you are retired for how many years now? Um, four years. Four years, but you are not staying still because you decided to be a fellow podcaster. Yes. Yes, and so tell us a little bit about what you have been doing and how you started this. Before the, the, the COVID all kicked in, I was doing Ancestry, and I was looking back at my, my father's line. My grandfather and my great-grandfather both served in the Royal Navy. My grandfather had been injured in the Dardanelles in First World War, off Turkey, around that sort of area, and he had a, a bone replaced in his arm. So I found out all of that, and then I found his father, which is my great-grandfather, who, who actually lived in Portsmouth, which is not far from where I live now. And he was a chief stoker in the Royal Navy. I thought it'd been really great if I could have a chat with him about his life. Unfortunately, he died in 1930. I can't time travel yet. <laughs> can't go back to have that conversation. My grandfather and my great-grandfather's life stories have lost, unfortunately. Then we got into lockdown and I was drinking far too much spice rum for was good for me. And I thought, I've got to do something different. <laughs> I've got to find something to do. I said... <laughs> Well, why don't I tell my story? So that's what I did. I used some old skills that I had of recording and editing audio. I recorded 12 hours of my life. So that's 24 half an hour episodes of my life. And I got to the end of that and I thought, we're still in lockdown. What do I do now? So I did a couple more episodes, a bit more in-depth stuff that I did. I did uh, six trips down to Morocco in a truck for a friend. I did two trips over to Colditz Castle in Germany and followed the escapers and stuff like that. And then I thought, well, people are going to get bored with listening to me. What don't I do other people? So I had a chat with my mum and 
I did my mum was the first one, and then it's kind of snowballed from there, really. I just started finding other people. The yacht club that I belong to is a lot of ex-naval types. I've managed to do quite a lot of those guys to tell their story. So I've done submariners that were in charge of all the nuclear bombs on a on a nuclear submarine and guys that was on the first round, Whitbread round of world race, guys that was in the 79 Fastnet race to tell their stories. That kind of dried up a bit, getting really difficult to bully people into coming and telling their stories. I went on to what I called a series four, which is me just having a rant basically about what was going on in <laughs> in the current affairs world and, and what politicians were up to. And, and so I did a Thursday, Thursday rant. And then I got into beginning of this year into Podmatch. And I have been almost non-stop either been a guest on other people's podcasts or having people come onto my podcast and telling their stories. My podcast, basic format, where I start off, I ask people when and where they were born and if they could describe what it was like when they grew up, the sort of schools they went to and the education they had. Then we'll look at their work-life history and then we'll focus in on a specific area of their lives that they want to talk about. Lots of people have written books and bits and pieces like that, so we talk about that sort of thing. So, And that's where we are today. Wonderful. This is filling you with a lot of great energy. Yeah. Fascinating. I know as a fellow podcaster, I understand how fascinating it is to get to know other people's stories yeah. and learn and mm. meet people from everywhere in the world. Like you, you're in England, I am in Canada. We, we wouldn't have met otherwise. No, no. So this, this is great. That's that's part of my story anyway. Yes, exactly. So, Tim, thank you so much for sharing your story about a welfare officer and what you're doing up to now, Tim Hill Podcast. It's the Tim Hill Podcast, Ordinary People's Extraordinary Stories. Excellent. So we will put that in the show notes. I will be listening to your show. Oh, brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tim. I hope you enjoyed it, today's episode. I am Daniela, and you were listening to Because Everyone Has a Story. Please take five seconds right now and think of somebody in your life that may enjoy what you just heard or someone that has a story to be shared and preserved. When you think of that person, shoot them a text with the link of this podcast. This would allow the ordinary magic to go further. Join me next time for another story conversation. Thank you for listening. Hasta pronto. Hasta pronto.